Please remain standing as you're able, and will you follow me? It's very likely we follow after the practice of Jesus and the disciples who would have recited what he called the great commandment in the morning and the evening and also when they came before God's word. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. For the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about issues around loss and uh, grief and anger and, uh, and the constellation that usually comes with loss. And we'll start uh, this morning by looking at a passage from Exodus 17. Uh, here's the setting, and the people have very recently escaped uh, from Egypt. They are weary. They are thirsty. God has uh, stopped and allowed them water from a rock. They're moving on their journey when suddenly they are attacked. And this is where we pick up the scripture, Exodus 17, verse 8. The Amalekites attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And so Moses ordered Joshua, go and choose some of our men and go fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will go stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And so Joshua did as Moses ordered and fought the Amalekites. And Moses took Aaron and Hur and went to the top of the mountain. And when he lifted his hands, the Israelites were winning the battle. And when his And when his hands went down, the Amalekites were winning the battle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I have to tell you, and I I think you can trust me on this, that there are very few dirty words in the Bible. I know because I started reading as as a teenager, and if they'd been there, I would have found them. But I want to share with you this morning a dirty word that is in the Bible. And that dirty word is this, Amalek or Amalekite. This word is so dirty that the earliest followers of Jesus used the word Amalek to uh, interchangeably with Satan or Beelzebub or the evil one. So if you said Amalek, you were actually saying the devil. And then the uh, Jewish brothers and sisters of the earlier Christians, uh, and you'll see this referred to in our bulletin this morning, uh, referred to Amalek to talk about doubt. And any time a person doubted who they were in God or ran into others who doubted their identity in God or uh, doubted what God could do, that person in doubt was called Amalek. It came to represent evil. It came to represent doubt. And Amalek was such a dirty word that toward the end of Deuteronomy in the 25th chapter, verse 17, God says this, In an order to Moses and to Joshua, you must blot out the name Amalek from memory. You must blot out the name Amalek. Well, I've got two questions this morning. The first one is, what do they do? What did they do that was so terrible that made them and turned them into a dirty word in the Bible? And uh, the answer seems to be this, that when the Israelites were escaping uh, from Egypt, they were, as many groups tend to be when they're traveling, they got strung out. I don't know if you've ever been on a field trip, but any time you get about more than 10 or 12 in your group... You know, there starts to be a gap between the leader and the rest of the group. You can imagine if you're looking at 600,000 to a couple million people on a field trip uh, to the promised land, you get really strung out. And at the back of the group tended to be mothers who were nursing, mothers with younger children, 
the young children, the aged, and the infirm. And apparently what happened is without provocation, the Amalekites in Exodus 17 swooped down on the end of the line, the very back of the line, uh, where the mothers, the children, the infirm would have been, and attacked with the intention of taking the mothers and the children into slavery. What is clear is the Amalekites went uh, miles and miles and miles from their territory, so this is not a territorial dispute. It's also clear that this is um, unprovoked. The Israelites had been in Egypt for 430 years. They hadn't done anything to offend the Amalekites. So this unprovoked attack, and in the attack, they took these women and children with the intention of turning them into slaves. If you want a modern analogy for the, what the Amalekites are doing, think this. Human trafficking. And so they do this, but they're not finished. We're told in the scriptures that five more times as they go from Egypt and, and try to settle in the promised land, five more times the Amalekites attack the Israelites. Uh, but they're not finished. There's a story uh, a couple of hundred years later during the days of King Saul. You may remember Saul. Some of you saw him on ABC a few weeks ago. But um, Saul is a king, and he's, his, his, the thorn in his flesh are the Philistines. So David, his assistant, the one who's king, though not everyone knows it yet, David gets some men and decides to go undercover and infiltrate the Philistine army. And while he is doing that, the Amalekites go to the town or the village from which all of David's volunteers came from. It's a town called Ziklag in 1 Samuel 30. And while David is on this mission... For Israel, with these men, they swoop down into the town, take the women and children again to be enslaved, and then they set fire to the town. So David and the men return to Ziglag, and it's a smoldering ruins, and their, and their wives and their children are gone. And they're in great distress, and so David says, well, we've got to regather ourselves and go chase the Amalekites. But the only reason they find them is this. That uh, as they're chasing the Amalekites, they come to a man who is a, an Amalekite slave. And because he's not in good health, he's of no use to them anymore. So he's sitting by the side of the road. The Amalekites have left him there either to rot, to suffer, presumably to die. And so David finds him. And basically this Amalekite slave says to David and his men, they went that way. And so David and his men are able to chase down the Amalekites bring back the children and their wives who have uh, been captured and were about to be sold into slavery. But the story's not over yet. A few hundred years later, a lot of the Jews are living in exile in Persia. And one of the Jews, uh, Jewish, becomes a, a queen. Her name is Esther. And that's good. But the bad part is there is an evil man who hatches a plot at, at to genocide or ethnic cleansing. He is going to eliminate every Jew, not only in the city of Susa, in the capital city, but in Persia if he gets his way. And he comes up with this plan to kill every Jew. The Jews don't really have anything that he needs. He just has this unprovoked hatred for them. His name, you may remember, is Haman. And I bet you can't guess what tribe he's a member of. Amalek. He's an Amalekite. For some reason, they have this unprovoked, irrational, deep-seated hatred of the people of Israel. And they act on it in very destructive ways. So why did they get a bad reputation? The easy answer is they earned it. But the second question is more interesting to me, which is, 
why did they do that stuff? If the Israelites were not encroaching on their territory, if the Israelites had not provoked them into battle, if they didn't really have anything that the Amalekites needed other than slaves, what brought this intense hatred? Well, I don't know the full answer, but what I want to do this morning is suggest in part an answer, and if you'll work with me, maybe it'll make some sense. This is the clue that comes from the Bible. The Amalekites are descendants from a man named Esau. Do you remember Esau? Esau was a twin. He was the older brother of, of, of two twins, and he was born along with Jacob. Jacob, as you recall, will grow up and his name will be changed, anybody? To Israel. Esau, uh, before that, as they're growing up, finds that Jacob and his mother have conspired to take advantage of him. Jacob one time steals Esau's birthright. A little bit later as adults, uh, Jacob and his mother conspired to steal his father's blessing. In our day, we can't understand the gravity of that situation, but this is huge. Every firstborn male would be desperate for the blessing from their father because it was, it was their destiny. It was not just their inheritance, it was just their destiny in life. And, and he's, he's lost this. He's lost twice to his brother uh, Jacob. It wasn't really his fault so much, but he lost it. And so as Jacob runs away for his life, Esau's left with a mother and father who he feels like have not dealt well with him. And so he does the very thing they ask him not to do. They said, you know, whatever you do, now that you're grown up, Esau, don't marry any of those foreign women. We just, our hearts just couldn't take it. So he says, hmm, I think I know where to go find a bride. And he goes, and he marries a foreign woman and lives a life um, in direct opposition to his mother and father's values. And from this comes a group of people called the Amalekites. From Jacob and his journeys comes a group of people called the Israelites. So in the Bible, in part, is saying this thing got set up a long time ago. And it got set up by the woundedness that was felt in the heart of Amalek. Um, of Amalek's uh, descendant, Esau. So basically, you're looking at a group of people who are identified by what they don't have. They, identity lies in what was, they believe stolen from them, and they carry this wound, and they're going to act on it by my way of reading the situation in the Bible. So here's what I want to tell you this morning. Why did they get a bad reputation? They earned it. Why did they go about earning it? Because they were hurt or wounded. I'm going to give you a sentence this morning, which I think you can use in life, unlike a lot of times what I give you in the sermon. Uh, and the sentence goes like this. You've probably heard it before, but I think you'll find it helpful. Hurt people hurt people. Got it? Hurt people hurt people. And so when someone treats you irrationally, or responds with anger that's just way out of proportion to the situation, there are a couple places you can look. One, you can look in the mirror and you can say, have I contributed to this? And, and perhaps you have. But the other place you need to look is what is going on inside of the other person's heart and life that has led them to react in such an extreme manner. I believe that much of the damage in the world is caused by people who are acting out of an inner woundedness or victimness in their life. And, and they're trying to make it right. And the only way they know to make it right is to get even. And so like Esau's descendants, Amalek, they're always trying to get revenge, thinking the revenge will even the score. Uh, Fred Craddock put it this way. He said, 
that when I am at war with myself, I tend to make casualties of the people closest to me. So what happens is when people are hurt or wounded, uh, folks that get caught up in their orbit end up getting wounded as well. Uh, maybe a picture for it comes when I was growing up, uh, they used to have cartoons uh, that would portray and it doesn't matter um, uh, if it was Foghorn, Leghorn, or, or who it was, but often there would be a cartoon set in a Western saloon. You may remember this. So in saloon, there'd be a fight that would break out at the bar, and the two parties would fight, and as they would fight, they would start to tumble together, and they would add people to their fight. And pretty soon, they have rolled with several other people through the doors to the bar out into the Western Main Street, and like a tumbleweed... They just gather this fight and it grows bigger and bigger as they grow. And oftentimes that's a picture of what happens when people are wounded and hurt in their own life. They, they, they declare unofficially war on those around them. And in that orbit, more and more people get caught up and it never gets made right. I think this can be illustrated from more recent human history. I think it's fair to say if you look closely at the lives of Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong, you will find some people who felt disaffected, alienated, wounded or hurt by something in their background. They were victimized and the only way they knew to deal with it was to go for revenge. It would be the only way that they could balance those scales. I think there's even a body of literature today, if I'm not mistaken, that is growing that says that people tend to join, go across the seas if they can get there, to join a terrorist organization. They do so not out of some political ideology, not because somehow they're distressed about America or what's going on, but rather they tend to be alienated, disaffected, they don't fit in, they don't have a group. And it becomes very attractive alternative for them to join a group that will turn around and exact revenge on the very people that they feel have caused their difficulty. Uh, It is already well known that that's where gangs recruit best. Gangs recruit people who feel disaffected, hurt, lonely, alienated. It's not so much the gang lifestyle and how they roll and what they dress or what they see, but it starts with the seed of I've been hurt or wounded. I don't belong. People don't understand me or appreciate me. And out of that inner hurt and woundedness, they join groups that will now, in return, inflict hurt on others. The cold, steely uh, thinking of uh, the philosopher Nietzsche backed this up. He used a French word to describe what he saw going on in the world and what he called the will to power in the world. He used the word resentment, which is a lot like our word resentment, only even more so. It's not just bitter and, and, and being angry and bitter. That, that's resentment. But when you add the need to get revenge on top of it, then you have what he called resentment, this, that our, our victimness, our woundedness, our hurtness, we have to balance the scales. We need to act on it. Now, it's really important to know that the, the hurt can be real or imagined. Uh, that sometimes people imagine themselves to be much more hurt than perhaps in reality other people think they have been hurt. But it doesn't matter. It's the perception that you've taken something from me. You've, you've hurt me in some way. You've diminished me. And, and as it gets magnified in my own life, then I see a need to get even. I think this helps understand, like, remember after 9-11, people would come to me and say, what? What did we do? How many times do people come up to you and say, why do they hate us? Why do they hate the West? 
Well, I think there are a couple answers. One is we probably have done some stuff. I mean, come on, we're all over the world. We, somebody somewhere has done something. But the reality is that there was a perception from that that was much deeper than what actually happened. And the West came to represent everything that threatened and made their situation worse or would take from them what rightly belonged to those who were not in the West and escalated and it became a matter of victimness seeking to revenge to try to balance the scales in some way. I think when you look at the political system today, what's going on, this is what you see, and I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, both of the parties are experiencing, in one word, I think, backlash. People in both parties are saying, wait a minute, I've been wounded here. I've had something taken from me. This didn't go in the way I'd planned or thought. I'm a victim here. They took away my fill in the blank. They took away my country. They took away my party. They took away my jobs. Whatever, fill in the blank. And there's that sense of victimness. And the only way people know to respond to that, to balance the scale, is to get some sort of revenge, whether it's at the ballot box, whether it's on Facebook, or whether it's actually taking a weapon and doing harm to another person. There's this sense that I've been hurt, and the only way to balance this is through revenge. And I think you see this from Amalek all the way down to when I look in the mirror on a given morning. You have to say, I've been hurt in some way. They owe me. I'm going to do something to balance this thing out. Well, interestingly, God made an, a pronouncement out this, about this. It's kind of strong. God said, we must blot out the memory of Amalek. Seems a bit harsh to me. But here's, I think, there's several things about that. I think that number one is, I think God was saying when people have that sense that they've been victimized and they have to get even, there's just no way that's a, just a self-fulfilling cycle that just keeps going on and on. It just feeds itself. And like, in other words, Amalek's not going to slow down as long as they keep feeling this. There's nothing you can do. You can't deal with them. They're just still going to go this way because they feel they've been wounded in some way. I think that's part of what's going on. But our brothers and sisters, um, as they would interpret the Bible, began to also see other things. The first thing is the earliest interpreters of the words of Moses said this, that actually that God would have been happy with just complete surrender. That you wouldn't have to wipe out the Amalekites, they said, had they just said, look, we promise not to fight you anymore. We'll drop our weapons. We'll go our way. It's kind of interesting. In Jesus' day, the um, Jewish interpreters of Jesus' day looked at it and they said this, there are no more Amalekites. It was their way of saying that God's not calling us to get revenge on anybody anymore, to try to or stop them violently from getting revenge. There's no one to declare holy war on anymore. God's not interested in that. There are no more Amalekites. And Jesus seems to take this possession, position because the nastiest people in Jesus' day are the Romans who are doing stuff that's a lot worse than what the Amalekites did. I mean, how many crosses are lined up on a daily basis outside of Jerusalem and outside of Rome with God's people hanging there? And Jesus' response is, there's no holy war to deal here. The only thing we can do is to respond differently. And, of course, he will go to the cross to try to do differently and respond differently to it. And then finally... Uh, after Jesus' day, one of the um, rabbinic interpretations was what has to be blotted out is the inner Amalekite. That what we really have to watch for in our life is bitterness and envy and 
victimhood, the kinds of things that might tempt us to try to get revenge on somebody else. And that, said these rabbinic leaders after Jesus' day, is what needs to be stomped out in our life. At any rate, what they all seem to be saying is that God is not declaring some sort of holy war. What God is simply saying is this cycle of revenge has got to stop somewhere. And it stops when we first, when there's a problem, say, did I contribute to it? And then say, let me try to understand why you're feeling so victimized. I I have a, a Facebook friend, not a friend, but a Facebook friend, who by my recollection is probably in the top 5% of wage earners in America, which probably puts them, what, in the top 1% or 2% in the whole world, will have a very nice home to sleep in tonight, food on the table, cars in the driveway in in her town, uh, and a good job to go to tomorrow morning. And sometime in the next three or four days, we'll post on Facebook something vitriolic about what people in this country have done to her. And my response is, what? Really? But that's the first response. But then the second response is, maybe help me to understand. Because it starts with understanding, not replaying the violence to try to end this cycle. Um, I was on vacation and uh, came back on an international flight last Monday. And uh, as you may know, one of the things you can do if you can't sleep on an airplane is you can catch up on all the movies that you wanted to see and didn't go see in the theater that are on the little screen. So I decided to focus on, uh, on this flight. They had all the Star Wars movies, all of them. Well, I didn't watch all of them, but I picked a few to watch. And I was reminded of the story of Darth Vader. You'll remember him, but that wasn't his original name. His first name was, anybody? Anakin. Skywalker. And he started on the good side. And then, as you recall, his lovely wife died, leaving him two small children. And with that wound, he began, if you look at it from this point of view, to go over toward the the dark side. And in his dark side, Anakin became Darth. And you could try to fight him with weapons, with lightsabers, but realized that wasn't going to move and change him. And so even Obi-Wan figures that out. Remember Obi-Wan just like, fine, and dies. And then there's Luke fighting him, but it doesn't change him. What changes him is it seems to me a realization, being reminded of who he is, what his original identity was, And reminded that even in the midst of the suffering that he had caused other people, he was still loved. And one of the most powerful moments in the Star Wars series is when Anakin is redeemed. When Darth Vader is no more. And Anakin is reborn. And he's not reborn by violence. And he's not reborn by debate or cajoling. He's reborn by understanding and love. It seems to me that's the only way to deal with the Amalekites in our world and the Amalekite in my life is to start with understanding and move toward love.